The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. So is it true that this recently deceased, revered rabbi in Israel had meetings with the Messiah? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. And here's the phone number to call. Any Jewish-related question you have of any kind regarding the Messiah, Messianic prophecy, regarding the Hebrew language, regarding Israel today, regarding rabbinic tradition, if it's Jewish-related, especially if you differ with me on something, think I'm wrong on a particular issue, think my beliefs about Jesus being the Jewish Messiah are misguided. In any case, give us a call, 866 348 7884. The earlier you call in, the better. This way we can get to your calls over the course of the show. First, though, I want to talk to you about the death of a major Israeli rabbi, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky. At the age of 94, he passed away on Friday, but the time he passed away was too close to Sabbath to have a funeral. You're supposed to have it within 24 hours, but if you have Sabbath, then Sabbath disrupts that, so then it has to be after the Sabbath. So the funeral uh, over the weekend on, on Sunday ended up drawing, some estimates say, close to one million people. In fact, uh, for those that are watching, I'm just going to put this on in the background so you can see some of the crowd as I'm speaking. You won't hear anything, you'll just hear my voice, but if we can put that footage up, we will. And You'll see it's it's absolutely massive, blocks and blocks and blocks. And of course, it's all black, uh, meaning black hats and black coats, because these are ultra Orthodox Jews. Just looking at it afresh, it's still stunning. So he was the most revered rabbi in Israel at the time of his passing. He was born in what is now Belarus and then moved to, to Israel with his family when he was a boy and he has been famous for his learning, for his study. So to, to be a greatly revered rabbi in the ultra-Orthodox community in particular, that would mean, and through the centuries, that you know the literature really well and that you understand the literature really well, and of course that you live by the Torah at a very, very high level. So it was noticed as a child that he was called an Ilui, which is a child prodigy. And by the time he was born mitzvahed, he knew stuff that many, many scholars would not master in a lifetime. And basically, instead of getting involved with other things, communal affairs and lots of things like that, and being an actual rabbi over a synagogue or even the head of a yeshiva, he was devoted to studying. His father basically said, that's the best thing you could do is sit and study. And that would be, again, for the special scholars that have that discipline and that gift. And for them, this is, this is how they worship God, by, by studying Torah and all of the commentaries and all of the related literature and, and, and on and on. So he developed a habit of study as a married man and kept this up through his life, basically, where he would wake up at two in the morning. So we'd go to sleep maybe at 10 in the evening, basically have a 20-hour day. He would wake up at two in the morning because he decided... Now, 
it, it, I can't fully convey the weight of this. I can't imagine it, actually. And I'm sharing all this so you'll know why he was so revered and then tell you about some of his statements about the Messiah that are very, very interesting. All right. No, he was not a secret Messianic Jew. No, he did not have a revelation of Yeshua. There's, we have no knowledge hint of anything like that. I'm not hinting at that, okay? I'm talking about the traditional Jewish Messiah that he's been waiting for. We'll, we'll get to that in a little while. But picture reading through the Bible once a year. Easily done, right? No problem. Many, many people do it. All right, you have to go to a certain pace, but reading through the Bible once a year, easily done. Uh, Craig Keener... When he was a young man and came to faith, before he was Professor Craig Keener and a famous New Testament scholar, he realized that if he read, I think, 40 chapters a day, he could read through the New Testament in a week and the whole Bible in a month. So he did that over and over again many, many times, probably for a period of years. You try doing that. Try to read through the Bible once in a month. Uh, imagine doing something like that. What Rabbi Kanievsky decided to do is more like reading through the Bible once a day with 10 commentaries to it. I, I mean, you can't fathom what he went through. So he, he not only went through the Bible, but he went through the Mishnah. He went through the Talmud once in a year. But then he went through law codes and, and key writings of Maimonides and, and other key pieces of, of rabbinic literature, that to read through all of it and to understand all of it, very, very few of the most elite rabbinic scholars would do that in a lifetime. And, but to go through it on an annual level, not just the Talmud on an annual level, that's, that's almost incomprehensible, all right? It, it's so complex, it's so detailed, it's so difficult. So to go through it and to have some type of, of understanding what you're looking at, very difficult. But to go through that plus all the other stuff in a year is mind-boggling. So that's how he became legendary for his study routine, his devotion, but then his service to the community. Because everyone would write him letters asking, what about this? What about this legal decision? What about this? What should I do here? What should I do here? What's the right thing? Because the the, the law codes and the commentaries and the response to literature where rabbis are answering questions, that answers so many things, but then something, maybe you don't know where it was answered. You have a question, but you haven't mastered all the literature, or maybe there isn't a clear answer and someone else needs to come up with it. So once a week, his pattern would be to, to go in the room and there would be stacks of hundreds and hundreds of letters written to him. So he would go through every one of them and then write a response. And his response were famously short. Yes, no, don't do it, do it quickly. Okay, and then he may have scrawled a few references. So he did that through his lifetime. And he was ultra-Orthodox Haredi, but not Hasidic. So if you think of the Satmar Hasidim or the, the Bavachar Hasidim, he was not Hasidic. So the, the Hasidic Jews look more to, to a grand rabbi as the community leader called the Rebbe, almost like with mystical powers with God. And they, they may be more into aspects of like, fervor and worship or things i'm oversimplifying maybe a bit more em uh, emphasis on mysticism and certain literature uh but the fundamental beliefs are the same the fundamental scholarship is the same so he was considered to be the giant 
of the generation because there, you know, a few guys died before him at the age of a hundred this or 98 this. So he was now the, the revered leader of a, of a large percentage of ultra Orthodox Jews in Israel, which make up maybe 12 and a half to 15 percent of the population of the nation. So this meant with nine something million people in, in the state of Israel, six million something Jews and three million Arabs and others, that you're, you're talking about a very large percentage of the community came out for his funeral. The vast majority of the men would have been there. That's the level of esteem in which he was held. He got a lot of flack at the end because he said, go on with Torah study, go on with the yeshivas when COVID hit. So there were a lot of deaths because of that. And then he pulled back a little. Uh, so he was in controversy more. And people were like, who is this old rabbi? Well, who is this guy giving decisions? And his son would come and, and read things and say them in his ear. And he just listened and just give a simple answer. And he remained sharp, as far as we can tell, very sharp right to the end of his life. But I, I share all that because it is major and it's, as, as we see reported, the largest funeral in Israel's history. But what's interesting is how much he talked about the Messiah. Now, let, let, me, let me show you a few headlines. Uh, this is from July 31st, 2020, on Israel 365 News. Rabbi Kanievsky announced the Messiah is here among us. So look at this headline. Rabbi Kanievsky announces the Messiah is here among us. That's July 31st, 2020. All right. How often did he say things like this? Now this is ChabadInfo.com. Here's an article, Rabbi Kanievsky, the Messiah is already here. But this is July 29th, 2016. The Messiah is already here. Well, then how about, how about this article, November 21st, 2015, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky on the Messiah. There's a rumor going about that Rabbi Kanievsky said in the speech that he gave on the day to commemorate the day of the Chazon Ish, another famous scholar, it was his father-in-law, I believe. Uh, he spoke powerfully and said that Mashiach, the Messiah, is coming, Motzei Shavuot, we should prepare ourselves by learning Torah. So he's saying Shavuot, on, on the outset of, of, of Shavuot Pentecost, uh, the Messiah is coming, so get ready by learning Torah. This is 2015. Um, how about this one from 2020, October 15, 2020, Israel Today. Israeli rabbi says he's already holding meetings with Messiah. So this is during COVID. A snapshot of Israel's spiritual hunger is biggest rabbis are afraid to leave the country lest they miss Messiah's coming. Uh, here's another story. This is Baltimore Jewish life. And when does this one go back to uh, March 22nd, 2019? According to Rav Kolodeksti, Rav Chaim Kanievsky never predicted when, Mas when Mashiach is coming. Well, what do you mean he never predicted when Messiah is coming? He was giving dates. He was giving times. No, 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 no. What his son-in-law said is, is that he believed the confession, one of the 13 principles of belief from Moses Maimonides, I believe in the coming of the Messiah. And even though he tarry, I, I believe in perfect faith to come in the Messiah, even though he tarry, I'm going to wait for him every day, believing that he will come. So therefore, because he believed it, just like Christians say Jesus could come at any moment, Jesus could come at any moment. So you live saying he's right at the door. He could come at any moment. And a year later, you're saying the same thing. And 10 years later, you're saying the same thing. And 50 years later, you're saying the same thing. His son was saying that's the same thing he was doing. 
He's coming. He's coming very soon. You better get ready. He's about to be revealed. And remember this. If you're a traditional Jew, you're not waiting for him to come on the clouds of heaven. You're waiting for him to be revealed here on earth, which means if you think he's going to be revealed any minute, that he's here. That he's here. And so-and-so could be the Messiah. This one could be the Messiah. Who knows? So this is part of the constant uh, rhetoric from the rabbi about the Messiah. When I, when I told an ultra-Orthodox rabbi friend about one of his predictions, he goes, oh, he's been saying that for years and years. In other words, because he believes imminent, any second, any moment, Mashiach could be revealed. We've got to prepare ourselves. We've got to be ready. So because he really believed it, that's how he talked, and that's how he lived. All right, we'll be right back. Ask the question, what does this have to do with the rest of us? And yeah, it's Thursday, Jewish Thursday. It's interesting, but what about the rest of us? We'll talk more when we come back. And some really interesting, quote, signs of the times from ultra-Orthodox Jews. Stay right here. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. There we go. It is thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Hey, to my great team here. Guys, I just sent you an email, a text to pull up with the 13 principles of faith so we can read what traditional Jews confess on a daily basis regarding general faith and the coming of Messiah. 866-348-7. Oh, oh, hang on. I didn't hit send. I didn't hit send. That's why it's still looking at the screen there at me. So we'll get your calls in a moment. 866-348-7884. A little bit more about Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky and the Messiah. Um, this is Matsav.com, March 1st, 2022. So this is just a couple of weeks before this revered rabbi dies. You say, well, what about a soul? I'll leave that to God. I'm not here to pronounce judgment on a, another human being. You say, look, he was so God-fearing and, and caring for the people and lived so sacrificially and a tremendous compassion and heart for Claudius Israel for the for the nation of Israel and the people of Israel and so on. And I'm not his judge. Each one stands before God, not before me. Well, I'm 100% sure that there is no salvation outside of the mercy of Messiah. And that's why we preach to every, every person on the planet. At the same time, we leave each individual to God. They give account to him, the judge, not to me. So I relate the stories of his life and how revered he was with appreciation, not in a demeaning way, and I leave his soul to God. So Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky on the Ukraine war, look for the footsteps of Mashiach. So this headline I'm looking at, March 1st, 2022, look for the footsteps of Mashiach. Look for the footsteps of the Messiah. In other words, when he sees these other major world events, just like a, a lot of a lot of Christian leaders and oh there's prophecy being fulfilled and that seemed to be the way he thought the messiah's coming is imminent the messiah being revealed is imminent live every day like that and therefore when these major world events happen major world shaking look for the coming of messiah immediately after that but as my rabbi friend told me years ago put this in the context of what he's been saying for years and years and years 
I've just pulled up quotes going back five, six years, seven years, and, and he's obviously been saying that in other settings for years before that. So don't say, oh, if he's been talking about it. He apparently he's been talking about it for decades. So the, the, the 13 principles of faith were developed in the 12th century by Moses Maimonides, lived 1135 to 1204, was the most influential Jewish philosopher in, in history and the codifier, the first major codifier of the laws in a systematic way in the post-Talmudic era. So you start off, so each, each confession, anima min be'emunash lema, I believe with complete faith. I believe with perfect faith, complete faith, the creator blesses his name, is the author and God of everything that has been created and that he alone has made, does make, and will make all things. I believe with perfect faith that the creator blesses be his name as a unity. Some of this is understood as a pushback against Trinitarian beliefs and that there is no unity in any manner to like unto his and that he alone is our God who was and is and will be. I believe with perfect faith that the creator blesses his name is not a body so that in, in traditional beliefs, God is totally non-corporeal and that he is free from all the accidents of matter and that he is not any form whatsoever. Four, I believe with perfect faith that the creator, blessed be his name, is the first and the last. Five, I believe with perfect faith that the creator, blessed be his name, and to him alone it is right to pray, and it is not right to pray to any being beside him. So most all of these, the great majority, we'd be able to say the same way some we'd have to nuance. I believe with perfect faith that all the words of the prophets are true. Seven, I believe with perfect faith that the prophecy of Moses, our teacher, peace be unto him, was true, and that he was the chief of the prophets, both of those that uh, preceded and of those that followed him. Eight, I believe with perfect faith that the whole law now in our possession is the same that was given to Moses, our teacher, peace be unto him. Nine, I believe with perfect faith that this law will not be changed, and that there will never be any other law from the Creator, blessed be his name. Ten, I believe with perfect faith that the Creator, blessed be his name, knows every deed of the children of men and all their thoughts that it is said. It is he that fashioneth the hearts of them all, that giveth heed to, uh, to, the, to all their deeds. Of course, this is being prayed in Hebrew. 11, I believe with perfect faith that the Creator, blessed be His name, rewards those that keep his command, keeps His commandments and punishes those that transgress them. 12, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and though He tarry, I will wait daily for His coming. So, so get that, that even though He's not here yet, and, and the Jewish community has been praying for His coming for thousands of years, I'm going to expect every day. I'm going to expect every I'm going to wait expectantly every day. So, People are saying that's what Rabbi Kanievsky said. That's why he's constantly saying, well, Messiah is coming any day. Number 13, I believe with perfect faith that there will be a resurrection of the dead at the time when it shall please the Creator, blessed be his name, and exalted be the remembrance of him forever and ever. For thy salvation, I hope, O Lord. I hope, O Lord, for thy salvation. O Lord, for thy salvation, I hope. Okay, so here's the, the big question. What about the reports that said that he has been meeting with the Messiah? Now, I only heard that a few times. I did not dig deeply. I, I dug as deeply as I could, but I only go so far. And from this distance, I can't tell you any more except that those words were reported. Is it true that he made that claim or was it reported that he made that claim? I'm not qualified to say. But... Was it that he really thought that he knew who the Messiah was? Is that, what he, is that what it means? That he knew who the Messiah was, and he was now meeting with him, and any day he was going to be revealed, that's why he was looking even more, possibly. Or was it his way of saying he's here any minute? 
that somebody among us I've been meeting with is, is somebody among us is, is about to be revealed as the Messiah. I can't say. But what I can say is this. When you lose someone of his stature in that community, there is a tremendous sense of grieving and a tremendous sense of loss and, and even a desire that his death would somehow be an atonement for the sins of the generation based on the rabbinic teaching that the death of the righteous makes atonement for the sins of the generation. If that generation will repent, then their sins will be forgiven because of the death of that righteous person. There's even more talk about Messiah coming because of the grieving, and, and it's got to be soon. And how many more people like this do we have to lose before Messiah is revealed? And he said it was, he was coming soon. So to me, in an atmosphere like this, it simply opens the door for us to talk more about the Messiah because more people are talking about the Messiah and to explain why we believe what we believe. And if the concept of the atoning power of the death of the righteous comes up, say, yeah, that's what we believe except we only think there was one perfectly righteous whose death could atone for the sins of the whole world. This is not some later Christian, Catholic, pagan, Gentile doctrine. It's not human sacrifice. This is substitutionary atonement, the, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's, that's what we believe. And, and perhaps use this as, as a good time to share the gospel, to share the good news, the Besorah. And, just like the rabbinic community is going to use this to say we need to learn more, we need to follow his example, we need to be even more devoted, we need to do even more mitzvahs, good deeds to bring in the Messiah. So our perspective is it's a great time to talk more about the Messiah and to pray for open hearts in the Jewish community. It's big news. I wanted to talk about it on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. With that, we go to the phones, 866-348-7884. Uh, Bela in upstate New York, welcome to the line of fire. Thank you for having me, Dr. Brown. You're welcome. I, I have a Jewish question. I'm sorry it's not a biblical one. But, no, no, all are uh, good. All Jewish questions are good. <laughs> okay, well, I'm Jewish. Here's the issue. I was born in Portugal, and as we know, a lot of the Jews were scattered throughout. Uh, one of my parents is from Spain, the other one is from Portugal. And throughout growing up, we were always told we were Jews. But my parents and grandparents were believers. And as I got older, I started to question this. I go, how, how am I a Jew? Why are you telling me I'm a Jew, but you're teaching me about Yeshua? That was so confusing. But as I, as I got older and this whole ancestry thing came out, I went ahead and did a blood test. And yes, I am Jewish. What if I wanted to move to Israel? How do I prove it? My birth certificate uh, says I'm Portuguese. Yeah, okay. That's the so, Bailey, do you remember what the DNA came up? Seventy, seventy-three, a European Jew, Jewish. Okay, so what about Sephardi Jew? So it, it wasn't Ashkenazi. It was it Ashkenazi no. rather than Sephardi? Because you would think with Portugal it'd be more I Sephardi. Would, yes, but it didn't state that on the. I figured that out myself later. Got it. it okay. Got it. Yeah, so all right. So European. All right. So let's back this up. What Israel wants to okay. know is: Is your mother Jewish? The, the DNA is important in terms of your own right. knowledge, but mm -hmm. uh, will it f function as legal proof in Israel? The, the big question is, was your mother Jewish? All right. Now, they could always say, well, you're, you converted to another religion. You're a Jesus follower and try to keep you out based on that. Okay. Let's just say they didn't know any of that. Uh, mm -hmm. Did your mother have a formal Jewish wedding? No. Okay, that's going to be the problem. Yeah. 
Right. Um, she didn't. Right. Now, I mean, obviously, as a believer, or she didn't. But otherwise, what they want to see is they want to see your mother's ketubah, which is the, the, the Jewish document, the Aramaic document that is written out mm-hmm. and signed by a rabbi for the wedding. And that would only be for a Jewish couple, a Jewish woman. That, that they, mm-hmm. and so, so if, if that's added in, <clears throat> in other words, if you, mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me, if you have that evidence, then that's mm-hmm. what they're, that's what they're looking for. So what I would do is I would get online and say, okay, I, I, I want to move to Israel. Or theoretically, I want to move to Israel. I don't have my mother's ketubah, K-E-T-U-B-B-A-H. I don't have my mother's ketubah. I have DNA records. Does that help? Uh, without that, it's, it's a bit problematic. That's the simplest way to prove it. Uh, with the generations of believers, that's wonderful. It's just a little harder to prove. Maybe you could get other info about your ancestry in writing aside from DNA. But check, I have no ketubah. What do I do? It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown. Absolutely delighted to be with you. Here's the number to call, 866 348 7884. Any Jewish related question of any kind. And a quick reminder have you been to vitaminmission.com? Have you checked out the great health supplements from our sponsor, Dr. Mark Stengler? Go over there, share it with friends, family, get the word out because there's a 10% discount you get to use when you're there as one of our Line of Fire listeners. And then in turn, Dr. Stengler makes a donation to our ministry to help us get on more stations and reach more people. So this is how we all partner together. This is our way of partnering with you for better health, vitaminmission.com. So a quick word about making Aliyah, which is becoming a citizen of Israel. If I went in there as Dr. Michael Brown, well-known Messianic Jewish apologist, etc., and quote missionary, because I seek to reach our people and others with the gospel, Uh, Barring absolute divine intervention, barring God just stepping in and saying, I want this to happen, I would not get citizenship. Why? Because I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. You say, oh, but Aliyah is for all Jews. The view would be, because of the influence of the very religious who wield a lot of political power in Israel, the view would be I have converted to another religion. And this has been debated in the courts, gone to Israeli, Israeli Supreme Court. And ultimately, there would be the ability to push me out and exclude me as a Jewish believer in Jesus, saying, well, you've converted to another religion. Even though I could give a stack of other Jewish rulings and rabbinic thinking, that would say once a Jew, always a Jew. Just like you could be a Jew for Marx, you could be a Jew for Buddha, you could, you could be... An atheist, I was talking to Dennis Prager the other day and, and you know, talking about our differences and things. And he said, look, I, I ask, you know, he's telling about having more in common with me than he would say with a leftist Jew who did not believe in Jesus. But he said, look, the Jewish community has a problem with Jews for Jesus. Does it have a problem with Jews for Marx? 
It's a great question to, to ask. But in any case, I would not be able to get in even if I could marshal strong arguments on my behalf. However, because I have legitimate proof of my Jewishness, both my mother and father being Jewish and going back generations being Jew, I have my mother's ketubah. I have the, the, the certificate, my, my parents' ketubah, their, their wedding certificate. Uh, ketubah just means a written document. So I have that, and it, it's legit on every level. I have a, I have a copy of it, and I have the, the physical itself. So if no one knew who I was, then I'd get citizenship easily. So sometimes a Messianic Jew will not make a big deal about the fact that they're a Messianic Jew. They're not going to be shouting it from the rooftops and wearing Jesus T-shirts, but they'll just quietly go because they're Jews. They're part of the nation of Israel. They want to serve the country there. And there's no reason why they shouldn't be there. That, for example, if, if you're born in the country and, and your parents are Jewish believers and you're raised as a Jewish believer, you're 100% welcome there legally. Or, or if you're uh, an atheist or a rabbi and you become a follower of Jesus as a Jewish person and you're an Israeli citizen, you're, in, you're not getting kicked out over that. So this is really just a way to exclude people. I said, when you convert it to another religion, therefore you can't gain citizenship coming in. As always, I'm making this as simple as I can. But I, I do not know how much emphasis can be placed on DNA. So when a caller asked and said, look, her, her mother was not married as a traditional Jew because her mother was a believer, even though they are Jews, I, I, I don't know what legal ground DNA has right now because you don't have the documents that they're looking for. And if you go back a generation, it's, if you're a Jewish person getting married, it's just overwhelmingly common that you would have a ketubah, a marriage certificate. Otherwise, uh, for our... our caller before the break. Otherwise, you, you have to see, is there other proof of Jewishness in your family? What other proof of Jewishness can be accepted? 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go over to Fred in Richcrest, California. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. How's it going today? Everything is going well. Thank you. Fantastic. Really appreciate your ministry. Um, I have a question about Abraham and his background before the call. And I'm referencing Joshua 24, 2, mm -hmm. where it references Abraham's father and grandfather that served other gods. Yep. And I just, I just heard a message that, therefore, this verse inferred that Abraham was an idol worshiper, and God's call of irresistible grace kind of pulled him from that. And I just wanted to get um, what the traditional... Jewish view and, and your view as a Messianic um, believer would be on that. Sure. First, this has zero to do with irresistible grace, not a, not a fraction of a syllable mentioning irresistible grace, and that God just called him and he was drawn because of that. It, it, to the contrary, Abraham's faith is commended. Uh, he believes God in Genesis 15, 6, and it's counted to him for righteousness. Hebrews 11 makes much about his faith. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, God calls Abraham his friend, right? Now, of course, irresistible grace would say, well, that's the result of irresistible grace. All I'm saying is the text says zero about that. So even if Abraham started as, a, as an idolater, which nowhere does the Bible say that, but even if he started as an idolater because his father and grandfather were, uh, 
there's nothing in the text that says he wasn't seeking. There's nothing in the text that says he wasn't recognizing something as wrong. There's nothing in the text saying that, that he was not drawn to the truth uh, as God was calling him, that he then responded. So factor out irresistible grace, that's just reading a Calvinistic point into the text that based on pure speculation. So leave that out. As for Jewish tradition, oh, there's a ton of Jewish tradition about Abraham breaking with idolatry. In fact, some of the most famous midrashim, some of the most famous homiletical stories that go beyond what's written in the text are about Abraham's courage. You know, there's, there are even traditions that Nimrod uh, threw Abraham into a fiery furnace because he refused to renounce idolatry. But probably the most famous story is this one. So again, this is purely Jewish tradition. This is storytelling passed on to illustrate points. Now, is it possible the story has some historical background? It's possible, but there's not a stitch of historical support. Uh, this, these traditions exist independently. In other words, as far as I know, it's just good storytelling. And many rabbis would say, yes, it's storytelling to illustrate a point. Others would say, no, no, it really happened. If it's in our tradition, it really happened. Okay, so according to the most famous report, Ab- Abraham's father, Terach, w- had, had an, an idol shop. And he sold idols. That's, that's how he made his living. And he had smaller ones and then bigger, 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 bigger. And people would come in to, to buy an idol, to buy a statue. And Abraham was running the store for his father. Again, just according to Jewish tradition. And a man would come in. He'd say, how old are you? 70 years old. And Abraham would say, this statue was built last week. It was carved last week. And, and you're 70 years old. You're going to bow down to it and worship it. And God would you know, realize, wow, that's foolish, and he would leave. You know, and so Abraham would try to get people to realize that there was only one true God. So at one point, he decides he's, he's going to stage something, and he, he smashes all the idols except for the biggest, and, and he leaves the biggest alone. And his father comes in and sees all the idols completely smashed and says, what happened? And Abraham said, well, a fight started. And the two smallest ones started fighting. And then the bigger one beat them. And then a bigger one beat that one. And then a bigger one beat that one. And, and they all just smashed each other until just the strongest and the biggest was the only one standing. And Terak says, what are you talking about? These are just statues. This is just wood, stone. These are just statues. They can't fight. He goes, yeah, exactly. They're not gods while you're worshiping them. And that was when Terak's eyes are, are open to the reality of idolatry. So there are all kinds of traditional stories. What do I believe? Well, I believe that his father was an idolater because the text tells us. And at some point, Abraham understands that there's only one God or that there's a supreme God communicating with him and he follows him and he steps out not knowing where he's going, but obeying that calling. When it happened, how it happened, Lots of beautiful rabbinic traditions, but I don't have a clue. The text doesn't tell us anything, and there is no tradition with any historical value that tells us anything. So we don't know how Abraham came to this revelation, what God did to open his eyes. But consider this. You've got Genesis 5, the genealogy from Adam up through Noah. And then Genesis 6 is the flood. So God finds one righteous man on the earth, 
through whom he can repopulate the earth through this man's sons, three sons and daughters-in-law. So he finds Noah, destroys everyone else because of their wickedness, and restarts the human race through Noah's offspring. Now you get to the 11th chapter of Genesis, and you have the Tower of Babel, and God scatters everyone around the earth. What happens at the end of Genesis 11? We get introduced to Abram, who becomes Abraham. And through Abraham's seed, the whole world is blessed. So there was something about Abraham that stood out, something about his response to God, something about his righteousness that got God's attention. And God said, okay, I'm going to bless the world and bring redemption to the world through his seed. To the point of Genesis 18, God shares more behind the scenes information with Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah and about the coming destruction. Say, look, I know he's, he's going to command his children to follow me. So God saw something about Abraham, but we, we don't know what. So if you just, if you just search online uh, Jewish traditions about Abraham or Jewish Midrash, M-I-D-R-A-S-H, about Abraham, you'll, you'll find some really interesting stuff. Again, beautiful stories, edifying stories. I used the idol story when I was preaching in India. I actually used it preaching to Hindus about the one true God, the story I just told about the idol shop. And they were smiling. You know, when I went over to the tree, I said, okay, it's just a tree. I kick it. It's nothing. I said, if I carve out a piece of wood that we bow down to it, it becomes a God or manifestation of God. And they were smiling. They were getting the message. Hey, Fred, thank you for the call. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks to the Truth Team for that beautiful transition from Skillet to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday music. 866 348 7884 with any Jewish related questions. I, I said early in the broadcast I was going to share something with you. Very interesting reports for the last oh last few years. Hearing more and more like the signs of the times or unusual things happening in the Jewish community or special messages being sent. So again, I just look at this as and about it's about the Messiah. God continues to prepare the way, traditional Jews would say, for the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah they're waiting for. I'm saying for the return of the Messiah, and, and we seek to use these as bridges to talk further, what we have in common, what we see differently, but to share our viewpoint. So this is from the Sfaria website. I, I read it, widely reported a couple of years back, not the exact date, uh, an article by Mordecai Lewis, uh, the beginning of the redemption and the, fi- and the three final hours. So I'm going to read this to you. Uh, I don't know when Mordecai Lewis posted this, but the events about, about this boy Nathan and things like that. Yeah, 2015 is the initial reports go back to when I read more about this. I don't know how long ago. It was a couple of years back. So two years ago, so this is, I guess, written in 2017. 
15-year-old Nathan had a near-death out-of-body experience that took place on the first night of Sukkot, September 28, 2015. He describes his experience exactly uh, what is written by the prophets in the holy books regarding the end of days. He stated the following, One of these days, the whole world will be involved in a war, World War III. The person who will start the war will be somebody named Gog, so from Ezekiel 38. At first, everyone will fight over taking possession of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Then the nations of the world will unite to fight against us. In this war, which will last for two weeks, a few million people within our nation will seek to assist. Therefore, if one wants to be saved, it's crucial that he study Torah, perform acts of kindness, and do tshuva, that is, return to Hashem, return to God in repentance. During the first two days of this war, the IDF, Israeli Defense Force, will manage to keep our attackers at bay, and then they'll be obliterated. Afterwards, our enemies will begin a killing spree. At that point, we will realize that we can only rely upon no one other than our Father in heaven. Okay, so I'm going to stop there for a moment. And according to Mordecai Lewis, and this, hey, this is what's written in the prophets, and this is what our sages have said, and, and ultimately Israel comes to this crisis, and they can only look to God. There are many Christians who believe in a similar scenario, that there'll be world upheaval, that Israel will come under attack, that, that many will be killed, that the people will look up to God in distress, that God will come and destroy the enemies of Israel and rescue his people. So they would say with the coming of Messiah, we would say with the return of Messiah. <clears throat> uh, so now, another report, Motzei Shabbat, so after Sabbath, July 20th, 2016, Rabbi Shalom Berger asked Rabbi, Rabbi Kanievsky what must be done to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Rabbi Kanievsky gave an unexpectedly direct and simple response. Wait, now, said Rabbi Kanievsky, all that can be done is to anticipate the imminent arrival of Mashiach. In that same month, uh, so July 2016, 31-year-old Carolyn Talia, an Orthodox Jew from birth, had a near-death out-of-body experience. She describes the following. Now, remember I said earlier that Rabbi Kanievsky's viewpoint for many years was any moment, any moment, any moment. Reinforced here. Okay. So according to this report, I saw my family and our nation standing together in one place, glancing towards the heavens. Then the sky transformed into this giant screen, which began to expose the sins of each person to everyone. People became extremely embarrassed. As I'm watching their embarrassment, I begin to feel embarrassed as well. Uh, I, they were so embarrassed, but had nowhere to run or to hide. You turn back and you see yourself. People start to cry, and they don't know what to do with themselves. Then I see this rainbow that comes down from heaven and hits the earth. The aftermath of that was a giant tsunami which destroyed much of the earth except Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. In Israel, people are running and running while thousands of rockets and scuds pass overhead. Sirens are blaring. There's chaos everywhere. So Nathan, this is the boys report, ISIS will kidnap people and torture them like they did to Gil Gilad Shalit, who is a long-term prisoner of war uh, held by Hamas. Carolyn, ISIS is at work beheading, stabbing, and slaughtering people. Individuals can't even bury their own family members or even mourn for them. Their main concern is just to save themselves. I ask, what is all this? Where am I? They tell me this will be what it looks like three hours before the revelation of Mashiach. There are many Jewish traditions that say everything will fall apart and get really, really bad before the Messiah is revealed. As I continue to run behind me, I see people being slaughtered and hanged. Some of these people I know, some are strangers. Then I hear this voice that screams out, Mashiach is imminent. I'm telling people, run. I myself am running to search for my family to see how I can help them. I know that there's going to be something very difficult. And I see my mother and scream to her, Mother, run! I keep running, then screamed out, Hashem, he is God, help me. Hashem, 
I'm running faster and faster, and suddenly I fell into this huge mountain. While I'm falling, I turn my head towards the sky and see an image of Rabbi Ovadia, so Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, who was the leader of Sephardic Jews in Israel, who's looking at me with a warm smile. He says, everything that happened to you and around you is the truth. It's midat hadin at work, the, the attribute of divine justice at work, now arrived in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. So she, she's at the Mount of Olives. Uh, it's split into two, so Zechariah 14. Once the, the mountain splits, Mashiach will instantly reveal himself before everyone will know that he is the Mashiach, and he will stand at the entrance of Har 18, the Mount of Olives, and determine who can and cannot enter. Anyone who doesn't have the merit to enter will stay outside and die. And goes on and on, you know, this, this report, I'm just reading, it's, it's uh, yeah. Let me just go to the end here. I'm going to skip ahead. Um, Nathan and Carolyn both had near-death out-of-body experiences, how can we believe them when the Navi, the prophet, states that Hashem will not do anything unless he has revealed his secret to his servants, the prophets? Elsewhere, the prophet says, it will happen after this, they'll pour up my spirit on all flesh, young men will see visions. Rashi, foremost biblical commentator in Judaism, explains that it will happen after this is referring to the future, that is the end of days. The Rambam, Maimonides, said that there will be a restoration of prophecy even before the actual manifestation of Mashiach. Zohar, Jewish mysticism, says that when the days of the Messiah approach, even children will be able to discover secrets of wisdom and through them be able to calculate the end of time, then it will be revealed to all. However, the specific hour of his coming of Mashiach does not appear to be known to anyone, even the Mashiach himself, the Gemara, Talmud, states since the days the Beit HaMikdash, the temple was destroyed, prophecy was taken from the prophets and given to both sages, so the rabbinic leaders, and Shotim, mentally unbalanced people. Okay, so... What do I make of all of this? What's my commentary on it? I, I have no reason to doubt that these individuals had these experiences. They could be dreams as figments of their own imaginations based on their knowledge of Scripture. There could be genuine dreams from God preparing the Jewish community for upheaval and the coming of the Messiah, which will then ultimately lead to revelation of Yeshua, Jesus. Or... It could be just demonic deception, even though it's in harmony with a lot of Scripture. I don't know. And, and I have not even spent time praying to say, God, what is this about? Because the obvious is what gets my attention. The obvious is the thing that matters to me. That more and more people in the religious Jewish world are focus, focusing even more on the coming of the Messiah. And they are expecting him to be revealed at the Mount of Olives. In other words, there's so much scripture with which we agree and great shaking and upheaval that I expect for the whole world and for Israel, and then for God to deliver the people of Israel as they look to him whom they've pierced, as they cry out. So this to me is very exciting because the anticipation grows and grows. And, and with that, we can lean into it. Now, please hear me as, as clearly as I can communicate. In no way do I ever seek to give the impression that rabbis in the past believe what I believe, unless they were open believers, or that this Jewish tradition has been preserved secretly by the rabbis to point to Jesus. No, I am not trying to be deceptive I am working hard. I have worked hard for decades to be anything but deceptive and to make things plain and to say, this is who I am. This is what I believe as plainly as I can right up front, period. 
However, however, that being said, I absolutely believe that God in his providence has left many traditions in Judaism that can be bridges over which a Jewish person can pass to help him or her believe in and understand Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. That's what I believe. And of course, we have the Hebrew Bible. That's the primary issue. That is the big issue, which has to do with obviously getting, uh, we, we just look at Scripture and say, hey, according to Scripture, Jesus, Yeshua is the Messiah. So we have the Bible, but then Jewish tradition, not to claim the rabbis believe what I believe, but to say, look at this parallel, or look at the same way of thinking. Or isn't this an interesting concept? Yeah, I believe a similar thing there. Oh, yeah, we have deep, deep differences on other points in our relationship to Torah and, and views of God. Yeah, understand that. But, but look at this and consider this. And to me, it's just good. The more Jewish people are talking about the Messiah, the more I have a conversation to enter into. Friends, avail ourselves of our Jewish website, specifically to educate, inform you, and for Jewish outreach, realmessiah.com realmessiah.com. Visit there. And if you want to help us reach more Jewish people with the good news, askdrbrown.org. Click on Donate, Designated for Jewish Outreach, and you will partner with us in helping to hasten the day when all Israel will be saved. So check out realmessiah.com. Visit it. Explore it. The resources there are free. You will be enriched. Trust me. If you want to stand with us and help, AskDrBrown.org. Click on Donate. You can become one of our monthly partners. We'll be back with you tomorrow. You've got questions. We've got answers. Another program powered by the Truth Network.